Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Toronto Blue Jays lost again. The Toronto Blue Jays got shut out again. 18 innings of scoreless baseball against Michael King, Garrett Cole, and a little bit of relief work on Tuesday. Not necessary Wednesday. Garrett Cole, look, if you look at betting odds, if you look at most catch-all metrics, he was in a very, very good position in the American League Cy Young race anyway. He comes into Toronto yesterday. His family is in attendance. And uh, an opportunity to make a closing argument in that Cy Young race Garrett Cole gets the fifth complete game shutout of his career. Only needed 105 pitches to do it. He was flirting with a Maddox at one point. Two hits is all the Blue Jays muster off of Garrett Cole. Uh, five strikeouts. He was more of a pitch to weak contact. Someone asked me after like six innings if I thought a Maddox was going to happen. And I was like, well, that depends if Garrett Cole wants to strike a bunch of guys out or just get 0-1 pop-ups. And he decided 0-1 pop-ups for the most part yesterday. On the other side of things, Aaron Judge had a pair of home runs. Yankees score six, and four of those runs come on Aaron Judge shots. He also walked twice, one kind of the old uh, intentional, the unintentional intentional. The first one that he hit um, was came in the fourth inning, and Jose Barrios Grooved one to him. Pretty good. Uh, the next time that he was up, uh, Barrios was about to pitch again. Pete Walker comes out. It was a bit of a weird moment where Pete Walker comes out to do a mound visit um, kind of as Barrios is is set and almost ready to pitch. That one ends up in uh, uh, the unintentional, intentional where Barrios goes behind 3-0. He's clearly being very, very careful. And then they just opt to put him on. Uh, he would hit another one off of Trevor Richards. So he now has 37 home runs on the season. Aaron Judge has not played enough to qualify for most of the rate stat leaderboards. Uh, If he did, 1.007 OPS again this year. So obviously last year is, you know, the height of offense. Short of Juan Soto's shortened 2020 season, uh, when we adjust for each year's league environment, uh, you know, Aaron Judge's 2022 is going to stand up there as probably the best offensive season, best season as a hitter at least uh, since, you know, probably the Barry Bonds era. And obviously he led the league in uh, in just about everything last year. OPS, OBP, slugging, home runs, RBI, runs. He has not played enough this year. He's only played 102 games. He is, or 103 games rather. He is still sitting on 37 home runs and 75 RBI. And an OPS, what is it up to now? 1.029. So Aaron Judge still having a remarkable season. If you're a Yankees fan, it's got to feel a little bit weird for Aaron Judge around the injuries to have still been just as good. Garrett Cole absolutely delivering on the contract and very likely winning the American league Cy young. And the season hasn't felt like you were two, two in the mix for a while here. Now by winning yesterday, the Yankees did something important on their side of things. They locked up a record of at least 500. So their streak of finishing 500 or better all the way since 1992 stays intact. Cool. There's some good stuff for the Yankees in that one. Aaron judge continuing to post numbers, Garrett Cole, likely locking down the Cy Young. And if you are a Yankees fan, I'm sure there's a small element of liking that you get to play possible spoiler for the Toronto blue Jays here. The Toronto blue Jays are still despite themselves in decent shape here. So the other, uh, the other relevant results yesterday, Houston beats Seattle, Texas beats the angels. So the Jays are still sitting 
in a pretty decent spot in the wild card. They're half they're in the second wild card spot. They're half a game up on Houston. They're two games up on Seattle. Now they don't have the tiebreaker, so they have to make sure they finish clear of Seattle. They do have the tiebreaker against Houston if it shakes out that way. But Seattle is the team to watch right now. So the Blue Jays uh, enter play today. Once again, not able to uh, clinch a playoff spot because of tiebreaker scenarios. But you can uh, you can do yourself a, a big, big favor by winning one here. And if you're looking ahead to the weekend against Tampa Bay, no, you're not going to see Tyler Glasnow or Zach Eflin. Tampa Bay is locked into their spot. They don't really have anything to play for. There is a, a small chance they could still catch Baltimore, but it's a pretty small chance uh, with the Orioles uh, hosting the Red Sox the rest of the way here and Tampa uh, visiting Toronto. Um, so it's likely Tampa doesn't have a lot to play for. So you don't see the top parts of the rotation, but rosters aren't infinite. Tampa's still going to have to start nine guys and use real pitchers. Um, guys like Taj Bradley and Zach Littell. Um, it's not a certainty that you can walk into the weekend needing to win two games and be sure you come away with it uh, to refresh on clinch scenarios and things like that. If the Jays won three, three of their next four, they would be guaranteed a playoff spot. If they won two, they would be in very, very good shape. Anything less than two. And you're really sweating that Texas Seattle series and to a lesser extent, Houston and Arizona Houston's off today. Then they get underway against Arizona uh, on Friday in Arizona, Seattle hosting Texas uh, starting today for a four set. So uh, again, if the Jays win three or four, they're in very, very good shape. If they win two of four, they're in very good shape. They probably feel a sense of urgency tonight as Chris Bassett takes on Luke Weaver. Um, yes, Michael King is, uh, is really good and, and has looked phenomenal since transitioning to the starting rotation. I think, he came into his last start against the Jays with like a 39 to two strike at the walk ratio since entering the rotation. That would be what? 44 to seven now uh, after his last start. So you can, you can understand it. You can understand Garrett Cole shutting you down. Um, but look, even as the Cy Young winner, Garrett Cole has now pitched 28 and two thirds innings against the blue Jays over four starts, 28 and two thirds innings, one earned run, only four walks, only 15 hits hit one batter. So 20, base runners over 28 and two thirds innings against Garrett Cole, uh, 24 strikeouts in that time, even for a guy about to win again, very likely the Cy Young. That is an unbelievably anemic performance. And you take those, you take the two games against Michael King where they've been completely flummoxed. And even if you can understand all of those individually, that is an awful lot of games against Garrett Cole and Michael King, where your bats were not at all competitive the quality of pitching in a postseason series is going to be really high. Right. And this is, you know, the concern, the odd time over the course of the year where the blue Jays get perplexed by a Ken Waldachuk or a, a guy coming up from the international or the, the independent league and going five innings against you. Like those are frustrating, but those are not scenarios that really come up in a postseason environment. What comes up in a postseason environment a lot more often is Hey, what if there's a really good pitcher? What if he has a really good game plan? Can you do anything against it? And for the most part this year, look, the Jays had a good offensive series against Tampa on the weekend. That's not too far out of mind. But for the most part, over the course of the season, and especially over the last month or so here, the Jays have not been able to do it against mediocre starters. They've not been able to do it, certainly, against very, very good starters. If you're looking at 
a potential wildcard series, you're probably seeing Eflin, Glasnow, and Savale in some order for Tampa Bay. If you're facing Minnesota, you we don't know what they'll do with the third spot yet, but you're seeing Pablo Lopez and Sonny Gray, and then maybe ba- Bailey Ober, who has given you uh, some trouble this year as well, and is that type of lo- big, long down the mound, high rising fastball guy that that's given this team a lot of trouble at times. So you can't really be like, well, there will be a Luke Weaver. In the playoffs, you cannot think that way. If you are the Blue Jays and you need to clinch playoff spot, you're looking at today as the spot where you can get some runs. Up, Luke Weaver, by the way, uh, he is a 30 year old, and the journeyman label is very apt here. He so he came up with St. Louis, spent some time with Arizona last year. Arizona let him go, lands with Kansas City this year. He has been with Cincinnati, Seattle. And the Yankees. He owns a 6.47 ERA this year. He owns a 5.14 career ERA. Um, this is a guy who is in there because he can soak up a few innings, and that is about it. Now, to be clear, doesn't walk a ton of guys, um, so there's that in his favor. But he also doesn't miss a ton of bats. He allows a lot of fly balls, a lot of hard contact. This is a guy that Jay should be able to do some damage against. And again, there is a sense of urgency here because. You're running out of time. And look, I I know J.D. and Ben were kicking around the 1987 Blue Jays thing earlier when they did good hour on the J.D. Bunkus podcast. You know, this is a scenario where if the Jays go one and three, they still probably have like a 50-50 chance of getting in, depending on what happens in Seattle and Texas. So it would be a really epic collapse with some help elsewhere uh, if the Blue Jays were to fall out of a spot here. But you'd be way more comfortable heading into this Tampa series if you took care of business here. And that is true for just general comfort level. It's true for lining up your rotation for the wild card. It's true for, you know, not putting relievers in high stress situations and just kind of letting them get their work in over the weekend. True for maybe getting Vlad a down day, Boba Shed a down day, things like that. So um, they have squandered over these last two days. Yes, very good pitching opposite them and a great Aaron Judge game yesterday. But they have squandered an opportunity to head into this weekend in a more relaxed and wild card focused mindset than they are. So we're going to talk about that, obviously, throughout the show. We're going to do some national level stuff. Dan Schulman's going to join us around 1030. Mike Petriello of MLB.com at 11. Alex Eisert of Fangraphs uh, at 1130. We'll go into uh, some of Kevin Gosman's splitter numbers and and fastball success uh, with Alex a little later. We also have lots of texts in the text line because the Blue Jays have just lost two very frustrating games, and that's always good for the text line. Uh, You can send those into 590-590, and we'll sprinkle them in uh, throughout the show. Clayton from PEI says, uh, Blake Dan mentioned it on the broadcast, but it doesn't seem like homers have turned... Does it seem like homers have turned into long flyouts? There were at least three swings last night that looked and sounded like they should have been gone. Um, Is this due to the Renos gone wrong? So, Clayton, this is something we'll talk to Mike Petriello about a little bit about later, um, but... In our conversation with Chris Black earlier in the week, we kind of dug into Shai Davidi's piece at sportsat.ca about how this ballpark has played so far this year. And offense is down in the park without question. What we're not clear on yet and what the data would actually suggest is more the case is it is personnel related more than ballpark related. So um, at Rogers Center, when balls are hit well, they're still going out as much as you would expect. So if we look at things like exit velocity and launch angle or barrel rate, um, when guys barrel up a ball, they're leaving the park at the same rate as before, roughly. 
they're just getting barreled up way less often. And again, barrel is not a results-based stat. It's based on how hard you hit the ball and what angle you hit the ball at. Um, So, look, there is some... There are some things that we don't have data for yet once a ball gets barreled. For example, um, one of the theories about Vlad having these big expected results and not actually getting the results is, well, maybe it's the spin that his particular swing puts on the ball. Maybe it's the part of the ball he's making contact with. We can't um, measure that quite yet, but at least on mass at Rogers center, uh, what we're seeing is that barreled balls are still leaving the park at roughly the same rate. And especially to left center center and right center. Um, there are actually about a, a plus 21 home run total this year relative to what we would have expected from last year's park. So um, Clayton, it's a good question. The difficult part of the answer here is that generally we need about three seasons worth of data for park factors to stabilize it and for us to have enough of a sample. And then Rogers center gets even more complicated because sometimes the roof's open, sometimes the roof's closed. And then also they're changing the dimensions slightly again next year. So uh, certainly one to keep monitoring Clayton, but the data that we have so far suggests this is more about Blue Jays players not hitting as well than it is uh, just the park factors. Um, someone in the in a 519 area code, make sure you sign these guys uh, so we can shout you out. But uh, 519 gets into the uh, the text line anyway. Uh, that person says Garrett Cole is winning the Cy Young because of the Blue Jays. Uh, that is not true. Uh, he certainly made a good closing argument these last two starts against the Toronto Blue Jays, but only four of his 33 starts came against the the Blue Jays this year. He is still going to post a two, what is it, 263 ERA over more than 200 innings. Uh, he'll end up with 209 innings and only 29 of those are against the Blue Jays. Doesn't hurt his case that he's dominated the Jays. But yeah, the Jays are not uh, singularly responsible for that. Someone at four in the 416 says Texas might have their division locked up by the weekend, so they'd have nothing to play for against Seattle. Uh, so you can't count on Seattle losses. Um, you can't count on Seattle losses anyway. Seattle and Texas have both been really hot and cold teams. My only counter to this would be that, like, we just saw a, a hangover Phillies lineup yesterday, um, the day after they clinched, put up a ton of numbers. Again, we go back to roster sizes, right? Like, someone has to pitch those nine innings. Some nine players have to play. And look, even if you have nothing to play for win-wise, guys are going to want their numbers. You pad those final season stat lines. You help your ARB number. You make a case for uh, the roster next year. There's still a lot to play for, and you can't bench everyone. So if you are the Rangers, um, maybe you sit Marcus Semien down. Maybe Marcus Semien tells you, no, it's important to me that I you know, post every day and I continue to lead the league in, in plate appearances over X span and Y span. Um, yeah, they won't have their absolutely optimized lineup. They won't be using their leverage relievers uh, for anything other than to, uh, you know, make sure they get their work in and stuff and stuff like that. But there's still going to be nine guys in there. There's still 18 innings to fill. Um, and I think if you're Texas, you would like, even if you think the Blue Jays are a better team than Seattle, wouldn't you like to knock out a division opponent. I, I feel like there's a, a little bit of uh, that as well. Uh, someone says pitching first defense, second offense last uh, 
Gosman, Bassett, and Brios would have much better records if the offense was better. Please analyze that. I mean, yeah, that's straightforward. Kevin Gosman has like an historically low level of run support this year. It's one of the lowest in uh, all of Major League Baseball. It's one of the lowest in Blue Jays history. Um, yeah, it's uh, that that one's pretty straightforward. And and honestly, this is why we generally we as a kind of baseball community have minimized the importance of pitcher wins over the you know, last decade or so, because Kevin Gosman is stuck on 12 wins right now. He only had 12 last year. Uh, has he pitched like a guy to you guys that seems like he should only have 12 wins each of the last two years? No, probably not. Right. Uh, 24 wins over 30 over 62 starts where you've posted a, an ERA just North of three and been in, you know, been on some Cy Young ballots, both of those years. Not Kevin Gosman's fault that the offense uh, hasn't come around behind him. And honestly, the Jays should have a, a much better record than this. They might finish the season with the best ERA in all of Major League Baseball uh, and only win, you know, 89 games or something like that. Uh, unquestionably, the offense has cost some of their starting pitchers uh, a couple wins here. Bassett's 15 and 8, so maybe Bassett has come out all right. But Barrios is 11 and 11 with a, a 358 ERA. Even Kikuchi only has 10 wins, and he's pitched every fifth day with a sub four ERA. Um, again, part of why we don't use wins to evaluate pitchers anymore, and part of yeah, this offense is, uh, has underwhelmed. Uh, Adam from Aurora says this is the most unlikable Jays team in the last decade, just not a fun team to watch. Uh, I don't know about most unlikable, but I agree that when we factor in where the expectations were and how they've performed, it has not been a, a very fun season. I, I think you'd probably have to go back to 2013 for the last time that relative to expectations, um, you know, it, it just didn't feel like it was delivering that way. Uh, and that was the year, obviously, they push in with a couple of big trades. At least that year, we knew pretty early that they weren't going to be very good, though, instead of uh, bringing it down to the wire here. Uh, so, yeah, Adam, I, I think that uh, that is a sentiment that is shared. You know, when you hear booze at Rogers Center or, or that big series against the Rangers where there's not a huge turnout, I think that that is uh, something that is shared. Uh, certainly, it's... Uh, it's something I've heard from people in the text line and on this show uh, a couple times. Uh, Steph from Quebec says, bring Austin Matthews on as the designated hitter. Uh, yeah, hey, that swing looked pretty good yesterday. Um, I don't know if uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, right on the doorstep of the playoffs, want to pull too much from uh, this era of the Toronto Maple Leafs when it comes to you know playoff success and synergies and things like that. But at least Austin Matthews has a, a nice, pretty left-handed uh, swing. Someone who didn't sign there said if they do get into the playoffs as a wild card, uh, will they be embarrassed with a very bad showing at the plate? Maybe. I don't know. Do you, are you confident this offense is going to come through against Pablo Lopez and Sonny Gray? It's possible. They just put up a bunch of runs against the Rays on the weekend um, against, you know, solid starting, not, not the three guys that you'll see in the actual wild card series. They have hit good pitching at times this year, just not with any regularity. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked about it a bunch. We'll talk about it more with Mike Petriello later. In the playoffs, home runs matter more. And this is a team that has not hit home runs at the level you'd expect. Uh, if you are down 2 nothing in a game and you haven't put a lot of base runners on, guess what helps get you back in the game? Uh, home run. Not having to string together three singles or a couple walks when uh, you can't generate hits against Michael King and Garrett Cole or Tyler Glasnow and Aaron Savale or whoever it ends up being. So yeah, embarrassed. I don't know, but they're not going to be, you know, I'm not going to go into any wild card series. I don't think super confident that this team's going to put up five, six, seven runs. They're, 
they're built to win four, three ball games. And uh, yeah, as much as that can sometimes feel like playoff baseball, playoff baseball is also fairly home run dependent. And uh, this is not a team that has hit a ton of home runs. Uh, Andrew Hamilton asks, has Matt Chapman lost a hundred million dollars since May 1st? If this were a deeper free agent class, maybe Um, I just don't think that this free agent class where his, you know, biggest competition for infield signings is like Heimer Condelario. uh, I don't know that he's cost himself a a ton of money. Honestly, he has a six fifty one OPS since the start of May. It is not a, it is not terrific. He has not looked particularly competitive at the plate since returning from the IL. It's a problem for this Blue Jays team, but I still think when you look at a free agent market that has Shohei Otani, Blake Snell, and then a whole bunch of question marks, Matt Chapman's probably still uh, getting paid by someone. Uh, Jeff from Toronto asked, why was the plan uh, not to just get Garrett Cole to throw pitches? Uh, so many so many swings uh, let him off the hook. I mean, this is this is part of the problem with uh, a guy as good as Garrett Cole is that he's going to have a game plan too. And if he's challenging you in the zone in a, early in at-bats, you know, I, we've heard guys say this sometimes when it comes to really elite pitchers, especially guys who uh, nibble well. Um, they, if they attack you early in account, that might be the only good pitch. That might be the only hittable pitch you get from. Do you want to get to a two strike scenario against Garrett Cole, where you're looking down some of that breaking stuff or, or the changeup or, or even just the fastball riding up in the zone? Probably not. I, I would say, look, when a guy starts getting to you and you're seeing him for a fourth time, you should have a better idea and a better plan at the plate than the Blue Jays did yesterday. But uh, what's the what's the pitchers drive nice cars too? And Garrett Cole's about to win a Cy Young, so uh, you know I, I don't know that you could have just sat up there and taken a bunch of pitches and it would have been like he threw 72 of his 105 pitches for strikes. You might have just been getting yourself down 0-2 in counts. Uh, but yeah, you could at least make them work for it a little bit more. Um, Eric and Red Deer asks if the ball has a problem at Rogers Center. Is the humidor too high? I don't know, man. I don't know how to answer that. They don't let me in the humidor. They don't. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to measure that. Uh, anyway, I think it's something that the Blue Jays would be monitoring and Major League Baseball would be monitoring. Here's the thing, though. Did it look like those balls yesterday had any issue when Aaron Judge hit them? I don't think so. Those got out of there in a hurry. Um, so I, I I don't know uh, if that is a, a good explanation there. And again, our, to my earlier point, when a ball gets barreled, so hit well with a good launch angle and a good hard hit, they're leaving the ballpark as often as we'd expect. It's just that the Blue Jays are not hitting the ball well. Um, that is the larger data point that we're dealing with here. Uh, Jake and Sault Ste. Marie says, I understand hitters going through slumps, but this is every Blue Jays hitter. Um, this is a hitting coach issue. I mean, look, we can do the offseason stuff when the season ends. The hitting coach makes six figures. The players make eight figures. I'm going to put it on the player more often than I put it on uh, the coach. But I think, yeah, when you have this complete an underperformance as a team. I think you really have to reevaluate a lot of your process. What kind of information are you giving players? How are you arming them with that information? What is the messaging? Is the messaging consistent? Is it coming from too many voices? Um, You know, is it, and at least in examining those things, you can figure out how much is on the player, how much is on the, the team level strategy. And if we're being honest about these things, look, if the Jays miss the playoffs or they get bounced in the wild card round, someone wears that, right? Like, fair or otherwise there will be changes because that's what you do in this case. And certainly it's the hitting side that is underperformed. But for me to sit here and say, well, Guillermo Martinez or, 
you know, Hunter Mence, they're the problem when they make a fraction of what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Matt Chapman or whoever make. Um, you know, this is a this is a hitter thing as well. And I think we should probably, you know, put a lot of the responsibility for this on, on the hitters as well. Um, but yes, everything should get evaluated in the an off season after a season like this, if it is a season where the Jays don't click uh in the playoffs. Because again, it's possible that uh that this still ends up just being uh just being a really, really frustrating ride. And then they get to the playoffs and look, okay, Mark and Cambridge, Cambridge. I love, love the five on nine text today. If game one sixty two matters, did they throw Gosman? Yes. If it comes down to one sixty two, maybe he has a short hook or something like that. As you watch the out of town scoreboards, but absolutely. If they need a win on Sunday, Kevin Gosman is starting. This is part of why we've talked about the urgency this week. And even going back to say the Rangers series and things like that, because the earlier you can get stuff wrapped up, the more you can, optimize yourself for the wild card series. You do not want to have to even like Kevin Gosman. If he has to start on Sunday, I think his side session would be tomorrow. You don't want Kevin Gosman having to do a side session tomorrow. Just in case you want him preparing for Tuesday, because that's the most important game on your schedule unless game one sixty two is. So um, there is a real cost to dragging your feet like this. Um, yeah. Anyway, there are a bunch of questions that are, that are very, very similar about um, the hitting and I mean, someone is now saying that again, you guys got to sign these, the Jays go for the long ball every time they don't just making contact wins games. That is, I don't know which blue Jays team you've watched this year because the issue has been that they have not hit home runs. They've been fine as a contact team. They just haven't been able to string together hits. Like they're actually a very good example of, why it's why you need you, you don't need to sell out for home runs, but you need it in your repertoire because getting three base hits in a row is really, really difficult. The Jays are top 10 in batting average. They're a contact oriented team. They have a not elite, but a decent enough walk rate. Um, it's been their inability to when they do put guys on base, continue to execute in those spots. Um, but they're a top 10 team by average and they're down in 18th in home runs. The The issue hasn't been this team not being contact oriented enough, um, you know, and, and I don't think there's evidence that, oh, they're selling out for the home run or whatever. Like, okay, they hit fly balls. So does, so does every team. Minnesota is their entire strategy is lift the ball in the air at target field and um, change your swing planes to, to get more launch angle and stuff like that. And they've turned into a pretty decent offensive team down the stretch. The Tampa Bay Rays are a team that like to put a lot of lift in the ball. Um, this is, th- these things are, you know, it's like pace in basketball where pace can be good or pace can be bad. Hitting the ball in the air can be good or hitting the ball in the air can be bad. It depends on your personnel and why you're doing it and how you're executing that. Um, but yeah, the Jays are a top 10 contact team and they're 18th in home runs. So I don't, I don't understand that particular read on their issues. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to see what Dan Schulman thinks about some of this, especially the bizarro home road splits. And uh, maybe we'll ask Dan Schulman, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, why the Jays feel the need to make this so complicated. Dan Schulman joins us next on Jays Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkers Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's lose 6-0 on the heels of a 2-0 loss. They could be in a clinch scenario tonight had they taken care of business earlier in this series as it is uh, champagne or beer or celebratory beverage of preference on ice until at least tomorrow. Tonight's a pretty big game, though, because the Jays probably need two to feel comfortable about how this is all going to go. And I don't know that you're going to see uh, an easier matchup on paper than Luke Weaver. Certainly a big change from Garrett Cole and Michael King. Dan Schulman, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, joins us now. Dan, good morning. How you doing? I'm well, Blake. How are you? Uh, I could be better. I, I could be getting my poncho ready for uh, for tonight's game and the locker room after. Uh, I guess, Dan, to, to fit the music we played on the way in, why did the Jays have to make this so complicated? It just seems to be the Blue Jays' way this year, right? And and um, they go on that road trip and go 4-2 and two and probably exceed expectations on that road trip. Um, you know, they got some help with other teams kind of melting down a little here with the walks and the wild pitches and the airs and stuff like that, but they just haven't made it easy on themselves because they just don't, you know, they just haven't swung the bats consistently well um, all season long. You know, on the plus side, they could be in a world of trouble had teams like Houston and Seattle not gone through the problems they had gone through, you know, over the last two, three, four weeks as well. The standings could look a lot worse than, than they do. So, you know, as you know, going into the homestand, three wins was a lock, two made it look really, really good. That still happened. They only had out. It's just now they only have four games left instead of six. But as you said, they could actually be in a position to clinch tomorrow if they win tonight and Seattle loses tonight. And on paper, yes, this this is the one you have to win. Does it knock them out if they lose? No. But I think the pressure monster really starts rearing its ugly head if they don't win tonight's game. And certainly you're playing a Tampa Bay team that probably at that point doesn't have anything left to play for. The Orioles could have the the division not mathematically locked up necessarily, but in in really good shape. But Tampa would probably still love to bump you out of the playoffs, especially if I mean, I guess we we can't know would Tampa rather play Toronto or, or Texas or Seattle. But Tampa Bay has the opportunity to knock a division foe out of their playoffs off bracket potentially so um even without Eflin and Glasnow um you know it it would not be a a particularly easy series and I guess Dan uh this is more of a kind of fourth wall thing but when it comes to explaining to the audience that even a really really bad week could still result in the Blue Jays in the postseason or something like yeah the games could potentially not matter on Saturday or Sunday to Tampa Bay but there's still got to be nine guys out there and you still right. got to eat the, the nine innings. Um, how, how delicate a, a tiptoe is that for you messaging wise right now? Because, you know, it, it, I feel a little repetitive saying it over and over that you could win one game the rest of the week and still make the playoffs. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and you make a very good point in the days when a 40, when you could have 40 players on your roster in September, it was different. And most teams would have 35, 36, 37, and you'd be seeing all kinds of young guys, who had no shot of being on a playoff roster and were, you know, fringy or very, very young, that sort of thing. It is different now. And the Blue Jays um, would not see uh, Eflin or Glass now. But uh, And I heard you talking uh, as I was driving home getting ready for this. The three guys they would face, Latell, Bradley, and uh, Savali, right? They're all big league pitchers. And would they throw 115 pitches? No. But would they get their five innings in? Yes. And then they've only got nine relievers in the bullpen. 
and seven or eight of them would be on a playoff roster, so they're good. Would they would they use a Pete Fairbanks back-to-back days or get five outs? No. But would they use him once in that three-game series to lock up a game? Of course they would. So, um, yes, it's not as cut and dried. And, and, and as you know, playing the on-paper game in baseball is a very dangerous game. And it's, uh, you know, the let the baseball gods sleep. You don't want to wake them up and poke the bear and all that sort of thing. So um, the Blue Jays just have to find a way – to win two of the next four. If they win two of the next four, it's a long, long shot that they would not make the playoffs. Even let, let's simplify it for a second. Uh, pretend Texas doesn't exist, like concede the West to them. The, the state or just the team? Uh, let's start with the team, but we could have a wider conversation about the state, actually, if you would like, but maybe that's on a different program. But and, and even pretend Houston doesn't exist. Let's just say it's the Blue Jays in Seattle for one spot. The Blue Jays are two up with four to go and Seattle has the tiebreaker. So if the Blue Jays go 2 and 2, Seattle has to go 4 and 0 in order to tie them. Um, if Seattle were to do that, that would mean then we'll bring the Rangers back in. That would mean the Rangers would be tied too and then Houston could be in a tie also and then it gets really really complicated. But if basically if they can win two of the next four, um, they're in an outstanding place and and you know buck and i've talked a little bit about some of the contingencies and this and that and it's becoming a little bit clearer day by day but bottom line like 99 percent to me of the narrative going into tonight is they got to win tonight's game like if they win tonight's game then i think again they keep the pressure monster outside the door uh for another day and you see what happens a win tonight makes everything look a lot rosier so i don't know the rules around this uh because most most years and most games i don't think an opposing team would ask for this could the blue jays ask to move the game to yankee stadium and this weekend's games to the trop uh, i know that you guys discussed this on the broadcast last night league-wide for anyone who doesn't know teams on average hit about 22 points of ops so on base plus slugging about 22 points better at home the blue jays hit 49 points worse at home and i know you know shy davidi had a good piece at sportsnet.ca this week looking at some of the new park factors um we can come up with a bunch of explanations but everything at least on the data side dan that i can you know get my fingers on and, and that we have available publicly suggests that this has been more of a personnel issue than it has been a ballpark issue I, I know again i know you guys talked about it a little bit on the broadcast last night but yeah. what do you make of this extreme a home road split for the toronto blue jays offense it's it's confounding i i mean i i understand what you're saying about personnel obviously they haven't been a great offensive team all year but it's the same personnel on the road as mm-hmm. they have at home so um, I did a little bit on this earlier this morning, not knowing that you and I were going to talk about it, but just in preparation for tonight's game. Uh, and I think unless I misread the numbers, I think the home road OPS difference is now up to 55 points. Um, oh, yes. Baseball reference uh, has not updated the numbers right. yet this morning. So and last night did not help. <laughs> uh, the, so I've now got the Blue Jays at 710 at home and 765 on the road and major league average on the season for every team. I believe it's about 735. So about 25 points below at home and about 30 points on the road. So the the personnel, like, again, it's the same personnel. So now are the teams that they're playing, is their offense being hurt as much here at Rogers Center as it has been in their parks when the Blue Jays play them? And the answer is no. Uh, they're, they're not scoring as much at the Rogers Center either as they are in their home parks when the Blue Jays play them, but it's not 55 points worth of difference. Here's another way of looking at it. At home, the Blue Jays are 24th out of 30 in runs per game. 
yeah. on the road, they're seventh. I mean, that's that just doesn't happen, right? Like, if you had a team that was seventh and twelfth, or nineteenth and twenty fourth, okay, seventh and twenty fourth, it just doesn't happen. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know if it's a combination. I don't know how the Renos could affect it. I'm not saying they can't, but I'm not nearly smart enough to know. Um, I heard you mention, and you heard us mention, you know, some people have wondered about the baseballs. I have no idea. I am not a physicist, nor do I pretend to be one on TV. So I, I have no idea how any of this stuff works. Um, is it pressure? Like, are they feeling the how the fans are feeling? You know, if a team wins games 8-7, to seven, there's a lot of excitement in that game. There's some maddening stuff and some frustrating stuff, but there's a lot of exciting stuff. When teams lose two to nothing, three to one, leave men on base, the fans act like the fans have acted this year. And, and there has been, you felt it, a lot of dissatisfaction amongst the fans this year. I think because they don't hit a lot and they especially don't hit a lot at home. So there's not a lot for the fans to get excited about. I don't know if that, is in the minds of the players when they're at home, if it's almost easier to go on the road. I, I have no idea about any of these things. All I know is that the, the gap between what they're doing on the road and what they're doing at home is seems extremely statistically improbable, but it's held up over 158 games now. Yeah, and uh, look, I guess the nice thing if you're the Blue Jays is the, the only way you're having more home games after this week is if you've made the American League Division Series. So yeah. uh, it's a good problem at that point. But yeah, we can, and, and look, this is something that I would imagine I will dig deep on. Someone like Mike Petriel of MLB.com will dig deep on Chris Blatt. Like this is an off-season project for a lot of us. And oh, by the way, the dimensions of Roger Center are changing slightly next year as well with, with less foul ground which obviously right. it doesn't impact how often a fly ball becomes a home run, but it maybe tilts things back toward the hitters a little bit. Um, Dan, this is but, maybe but, but Blake, just one second. The, yeah, the dimensions came in this year. Like I know, the I know, walls were, yeah. I know the walls were raised in a lot of areas. I get that. But to me, the, the walls came in more than the walls were raised. The concern was, would it be a fan box? So um, the stuff that really interests me is the 380 foot fly balls and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I know you and Chris and Mike in 10 seconds could answer um, a question about, well, do they have more 380-foot fly balls at home than any other team? Or, or you know, how far are their fly balls going with a, with a certain range of um, exit velocity and launch mm -hmm. angle compared to others or home versus row? But you're, like you said, this is a project. And as much as we're interested in it, how do you think the people who crunch the numbers within the organization are interested in it? Like they, they've got to, it, it's hard, but they've got to try to figure out what's at the root of all this. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where I was going to go. And you mentioned, you know, the, the walls coming in and the walls getting bigger. This was also something that depending on how you set up a simulation, like Petriello and I disagreed in the off season on how this would play out based on, you know, my, my simulations were very, very crude. His were very advanced um, about how that might play out. And now, yeah, the, the foul ground is coming in a little bit, which is another yeah. factor because more potential outs become, you know, just long strikes. Um, and Dan, I was going to go there with you in terms of, you know, how do you navigate this as a front office? I guess it's just, well, they have more data than us and they've been working on it, uh, you know, probably since the, the second that they announced these, these changes. So um, not an easy set of decisions there for the Blue Jays front office. Uh, not an easy set of decisions these last four games and into the wild card for John Schneider. And look, I, I 
thought we got a look at maybe what a wild card game one lineup would look like on Tuesday with Brandon Belt back in the mix. Kevin Biggio still in there. Um, yesterday, we saw a little bit of a different look with Dalton Varsho taking a seat and Whit Merrifield drawing in. Um, if you are John Schneider, Dan, these last four games, there is obviously the level of urgency to win these games. How, how much are you reacting to, you know, who has a good game or like... I guess there is a value in stability and certainly at the top of the order, they have always prioritized some stability with the lineup there. But when it comes to, you know, Biggio, Merrifield, Schneider, Varsho in the mix for two spots, or even right. the potential role of Matt Chapman in a wild card right. series, how in flux do you think those things can be these last four games? So my experience from having done the playoffs for ESPN radio for a zillion years is these things are in flux a lot. You, you, you basically throw night that you throw six months out the window, but if you've got a hot hand, you ride the hot hand. If you don't think somebody has a good chance of getting a hit, you, you sit them on the bench, maybe not a star, obviously, but around the edges, I, I've seen it too many times. I saw it with the giants in their heyday with the rays, like you name it. Um, so, uh, I, I believe tonight Varsha will be back in there, and I don't think Merrifield is going to play. That's just my guess. That's kind of the other configuration of the lineup that we've seen. Whenever, uh, like a Cole or a Glass now, I think Merrifield's been in there for all of those games, and John Schneider's answer has been consistent. Uh, we're prioritizing contact against guys who are hard to get contact against. So they're taking Merrifield's contact maybe over Varsha's possibilities of the plate obviously they're giving up some defense when you don't have Varsho in the game but against Luke Weaver I would bet anything that, that Dalton Varsho is going to be in the game so I assume Merrifield won't be I think Biggio still will be I'm glad you mentioned Davis Schneider um, I know he's 0 for 30 uh, I don't discount that at all I also know as you know he's had a higher percentage of balls called strikes on him than any oh, batter yeah. in baseball since he got to the majors like it's and it's not even all that close, really. Like it's crazy how many pitches he's had called against him. And I also know from talking to him on also a daily basis because he's a wonderful guy to talk to. He's very open about everything. He's not rattled or shattered by this. He's still the same guy with the same process. I don't think tonight's the night, but I'd love to see him get back in there. The Blue Jays haven't faced a lefty starter in a while and aren't going to in a while and may not even no matter who they play in the first round of the playoffs. Like, I don't know when David Schneider plays anymore. Um, one of two things happens. Either, you know, they decide to use him as a pinch hitter if they lift a Kiermaier or a Varsho or a Biggio, whatever, against a reliever. You know, they bring him in off the bench with the power potential. Um, or they just say, the heck with it. This, whatever we're doing isn't working. We're going to give him a shot. But I, I don't know that that's going to happen. You know, if they decided to sit Chapman for a game because he's struggling. You could move Biggio to third and put Schneider at second. I don't think they're going to do that. I know they pinch hit for Chapman once. Um, maybe that happens again. Maybe if there's a lefty on the bench, they, they bring somebody off the bench and hit for him. But honestly, tonight, I think the only change you're going to see, just my guess, is Varsho in and Merrifield out. But I, I do think people should be prepared for more uh, of the possibility of influx stuff rather than just loyal to who's done, who's done it before stuff. You, it, the same thing in the bullpen. And I'm not speaking specifically about Romano and Hicks, but again, having done the playoffs for a million years, um, if you fall outside the circle of trust in October, a manager is more hesitant to put you back in there. I, I think they've got to go with the guys 
who are throwing the ball well. It doesn't always work that way. Like, remember Tampa Bay, remember Nick Anderson a few years ago for mm-hmm. Tampa Bay had had an incredible year, but it was clear by the end of the season he was just kind of shot. Like, there was not much left. And Kevin Cash went to him a few more times, and it didn't work out. It, it, in the end, he just ran out of ran out of pitches. You know, he just ran out of the ability to to get guys. But um, I do think you have to be more reactive to who's hot and who's not at this point. This it, it's a tough one. And you mentioned David Schneider. Um, not only you know has he not played much lately, but he also only has two pinch hit appearances. And, and I don't know how often he was pinch hitting in the minor leagues. Not very often I, is my guess because he was uh, playing. So he was playing every day for Buffalo, but yeah, he's over two in that spot. And I, I think of, you know, Cam Eden as well, who we've seen pinch run, but not get a stolen base attempt. There are some tough, you know, lineup decisions for a wild card series if they get there. And, you know, what confidence level do you have deploying David Schneider against a tough lefty out of the pen or, or asking Cam Eden to steal a base that again, Dan, this goes back to had they taken care of their business a little bit more earlier in the week, there is an actual cost to this. Even if it doesn't cost you a spot, you can, yeah. you know, you have to foot on the gas a little bit more and not, not you're optimizing to win each game right now, not optimizing for what does the best for you come wild card time. Right. So, so two things, um, not, not again, not to get ahead of anything because they haven't clinched <laughs> anything, but if they were to make a wild card series, uh, I've been asked a couple of times, so what position player comes off the roster? And my answer is none of them. Yeah, um, I, I don't, yeah, you don't need 13 pitchers in, in a three game series, in my opinion. Um, right now they've got 14 and 14. I think in a wild card series, they go 14 and 12 and, and I think every position player is who's on the roster now is on the roster. Um, I may be overlooking something or missing. You need Espinal as a back. I've heard the Espinal thing. Firstly, he's swinging the bat very well, and he's been a very good pinch hitter lately against lefties for them, and he's the backup shortstop. So he's not going anywhere, and I believe Cam Eden would be there. Um, you know, if, if you get into a situation late and you're down a run in the eighth inning and Kirk gets on, you have to run. Um, so uh, I believe the 14 guys they've got are the 14 guys they've got and two pitchers would go and it would be 14 and 12. The other thing that is, it's not problematic yet, but as you said, in terms of optimizing things like Kevin Gosman's going to have to go through his full routine to get mm-hmm. ready for a Sunday game until they tell him there's no Sunday game. Um, uh, if they need him in 162, obviously they'll have him in 162, but they'd like him on Tuesday for game one, um, I, I don't know if he's, I think today would be his side day or maybe tomorrow would be his side day, but he, you know, you have to assume you're pitching until you're told um, you're not pitching. So they'd like to do anything they can to avoid that, um, obviously, but they, they can make this easy on themselves, you know, score a few runs off Luke Weaver, turn it over to your high leverage relievers late in the game and everybody goes home happy. And then, and then you watch the Seattle game and, and, and you see what happens tonight. So um, it's it's huge. Tonight is absolutely huge, and especially getting one or two early. I've talked about it a lot, um, so I imagine you've seen it. Their first inning numbers oh. are are mind boggling to me. How a team with a great starting rotation, which they do have, um, they've given up a lot of runs in the first, more than you would expect. But overall, obviously, their starting pitching has been great. But I think they're being outscored 92 to 64 in the first inning of games this year. So they're they're minus 28 in the first inning, and they're like plus 70 or whatever it is in the other innings. And it just feels like psychologically that can take a toll. Um, you know, they go three up, three down, or they strand a couple of runners, and then third, fourth, fifth inning. They're just they're playing from behind 
so often this year. And I, I think it would be a huge pressure release if they're able to you know, get a couple of runs in the first off Luke Weaver tonight. Yeah, it would be a, it would be a nice change for sure. And this is not a Yankees bullpen that is uh, unbelievably good because they had to move their, their some of their best bullpen pieces into the rotation to be uh, lights out starters and take them out of the pen. Uh, Dan, if things go well over the next couple of days, we could see kind of a bizarro Sunday game where Toronto and Tampa are about to play each other in the wild card and don't want to show each other things. Obviously you can't go basketball or football style where you shelve the playbook and there are only 28 guys on the roster. Um, last year got a little weird with the double header to close the season in games yeah. that weren't all that relevant. Do you have me- any memory of games you've called where that final game of the season just got super bizarre? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the one I think this is not super bizarre, but this was super unusual. Buck and I, this is whatever year the Mets played the Reds in a one game playoff, 99 or 2000, something like that. And, um, we're doing a game at Milwaukee. I think it's the Reds at Milwaukee on the last day of the season. The game means nothing to Milwaukee. The Reds need to win it to get into a one-game playoff with the Mets, if my memory is, is, is serving me right. And it's supposed to start at 1 o'clock local time. This is before everybody played at 3, 1 o'clock local time. And I mean it's a monsoon, a monsoon right in Milwaukee. And they started the game, I think, seven hours late. I think it turned into a Sunday night game on the last day of the season. And then the game lasted like an hour and 45 minutes, it felt like. Because Milwaukee <laughs> didn't care. They, their season was done. Their bags were packed. Their flights were booked. You know, so weird stuff like that. But it could get weird. But as you said, like you've got to, um, you know, you've got to throw the nine innings, right? So say, say Gosman doesn't start the game because they're saving him. Like the relievers have to cobble together nine innings, mm-hmm. right? There's no, there's no other guy on the staff who can who can go six innings. Bassett's going tonight, so it's Kikuchi and Ryu the next two days, and then it's just literally a bullpen day. And you might see seven or eight not, uh, relievers, uh, you know, throwing, uh, trying to get the nine innings in. It, you know, it'd be nice if John Schneider and Kevin Cash could shake hands and say, "Hey, you want to take the day <laughs> off?" Like. Yeah, we, you go see a movie, uh, you know, I'll go have lunch, and we'll see you down Tuesday at the Trop, but you can't do that. So it would be a very, very bizarre game. Uh, I'm not sure how Buck and I would fill all the airtime. I guess we would just be looking forward to the playoff series. It's not like hockey or basketball where you don't want to show the team, mm-hmm. you know, any of your playbook or anything, or football, your play, you know, it's not that, but... Everybody, I think, would just be playing it safe, going through the motions, and hoping nobody gets hurt. Uh, you know who played first base for the Brewers in that game? Uh, I have no shot of knowing that. Kevin, Kevin Barker. Oh, did he? Yeah. You, have you been looking while uh, while I've been talking? Yeah, yeah. Cal oh. Aldred against Pete Harnish, uh, seven yeah. seven one. Yeah, I, I had it. I had it ready to go, and then I saw so Kevin Barker's so name on it. Ninety nine or two thousand. It was ninety nine. Yeah. And did Cincinnati won the game, right? Yeah, seven to one, and, and it was it was two and a half hours, which I guess at that point oh. in baseball probably felt like an hour forty five. You know what I remember hearing? Because we were literally, uh, literally sitting around and everybody was just consuming brats by the dozen in <laughs> Milwaukee waiting for this game to start. So we heard at some point, if the field is not playable, get a load of this. So again, it's the last day of the season. Milwaukee's done. They don't give a damn about what's going on. They're in their home ballpark. And we had heard there was a chance baseball was going to make Cincinnati and Milwaukee 
fly to wherever Cincinnati and New York would have had to have played the wild card game. I can't remember. I think it was Cincinnati. They were going to make Cincinnati and Milwaukee fly to Cincinnati and play on the Monday. And the Mets would be waiting there if Cincinnati won just to play the wild card game. Like it was just logistical chaos. And, and nobody does logistical chaos like Major League Baseball. No. You got to give me credit for that. So, but, um, you know, let's hope, let's hope the Blue Jays take care of business by Sunday. We've got a roof. They play the game. Nobody gets hurt. Um, and everybody gets on an airplane happy after the game on Sunday. By the way, all that just for the Reds to get a complete game shutout from Al Leiter uh, right. on the Mets side. The next In, day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dan Schulman, <laughs> just for anyone who doesn't know, that that's you kind of uh, talking about when, when you bounced around for playoffs. You are with us on the Blue Jays as long as the Toronto Blue Jays are in this thing, right? Correct. Yes. So my uh, ESPN radio playoff time, um, you know, to be transparent, I had a contract and loved it for many, many, many years. But uh, now that we know that Sportsnet is able to do playoff broadcast, which, you know, started as of last year when Buck and Tabby did the um, the first two games, I was still with ESPN radio then. But yes, now I am uh, uh, Sportsnet and Blue Jays from um, from start to finish. So, yeah, as long as they're going, I'm going with. Awesome. Uh, we look forward to hearing you on those calls, and hopefully there are more than four of them left, Dan. <laughs> I hope so. That, that would be nice. Fingers crossed. Uh, Dan Schulman, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, will be on the call tonight, of course, for Chris Bassett against Luke Weaver as the Jays look to get one of these uh, final week wins here to reset what Dan was saying. There are three, and the Jays are locked in. Two, and the Jays are feeling pretty good. Anything less than that, and then you're asking Texas or Arizona for favors. Uh, hey, who knows? Maybe Gabriel Moreno ends up helping the Blue Jays in the playoff race this year after all. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll do a little bit more on these home road splits and park factors. Uh, going to whip around a number of places with Mike Petriello of MLB.com. The headline item here, the guys over at MLB.com, Mike Petriello, Anthony Kastrovitz, been doing a lot of work now that we're at the end of the season on what the stolen base environment has looked like in the new era of baseball where the bases are closer and there's a pitch clock and then there are fewer disengagements. Um, stolen bases are, of course, way up. Ronald Acuna Jr., 40 and 70, how is that going to look in the playoffs? Because we always hear that playoffs get a little bit more conservative. Uh, it relies a little bit more on the home run. So what's the point of 90 feet if you're going to hit a bomb anyway? But I kind of wonder if this is here to stay for some of these teams. We'll take a break. We'll talk to Mike Petriello about it as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Some familiar patterns setting in for the Toronto Blue Jays here. Uh, a shutout down at Rogers Center again yesterday. 18 straight innings at home without a run against the New York Yankees. For your Toronto Blue Jays has them, I don't want to say quite up against the ropes necessarily, but they've lost ring control a little bit here. They're, they're certainly not fighting the fight they want to fight in this final week. Mike Petriello of MLB.com joins us now to help us sort through it. Mike, before we get into that, how are our New Jersey Devils looking? They are going to go all the way this year, but like, I know it's the preseason. I know nothing matters, but when they scored four goals in like 10 minutes against the flyers the other day, I am, I'm all in. There you go. There you go. Uh, I could not tell you uh, enough about the devil's outlook 
this season. So I'm glad you're optimistic about it. Um, on the baseball side, Mike, you you had tweeted coming into yesterday that while betting odds or whatever were very, very optimistic, Garrett Cole had already wrapped up the AL Cy Young, that the Jays could help Kevin Gosman's case or maybe hurt Garrett Cole's case by putting some kind of number up on him. Uh, no. No, they did not. Yeah. They uh, they actually probably locked it in for sure. Um, I mean, we've done this player specific at times. They've been we've done the runners in scoring position thing when when that was an issue. We are 158 games in here, and it, it really just does seem like the Jays do not have that great an offense. I, I think we're getting very very close to that conclusion here. Um, Mike, what what do you make of this team's inability to find it on that side of the ball with any consistency this year? I mean, Garrett Cole is a very good pitcher, right? <laughs> like we should give him at least a little sure, bit of credit but, for being. But there have been a, a lot of not good pitchers who have also done this to the Blue Jays. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. I think the problem is uh, you never had everybody. I don't even want to say on all cylinders, anybody near on all cylinders <laughs> at the same time, like Matt Chapman this year. Uh, here's a wild stat for you, Blake. In the course of this season, he has had the best month of his entire career, which was April. And the two worst months of his entire career, which is August and September. And I know everybody wants to, yeah, well, fire the hitting coaches, right? I, I, what do you do with that? Do you, <laughs> don't you give them credit for him being amazing in in the first part of the season? You know, and then you've got like David Schneider went off for a month and then has as many hits as I do over the last like two and a half weeks. And Boba Shek got hurt. I, I don't know what you do with this, except you could probably make a case. Uh, and this is a revisionist history to some extent. You go back to the trades last winter right and it was very explicitly stated we want more defense especially in the outfield we're willing to sacrifice some power to get there because we want to be a well-rounded team and as i remember everybody loved that because everybody likes hearing things like well-rounded and speed and defense it hasn't really worked out that way so well i do think you have to point to you know vlad jr obviously and chapman's second half collapse to some extent the team was constructed that the offense would be just a little bit weaker and, and i think it's been a little bit weaker than even that yeah, and look, the run prevention side has worked out fine in the outfield. The Blue Jays are lapping the entire league in defensive runs saved. If you prefer outs above average, it's them and the Brewers and, and then a huge gap before everyone else. Like, like the run prevention side has worked. The Jays might finish the season with the best ERA in all of baseball, and that is a pitcher and defense stat, not just the pitcher side. But yeah, the offense is, uh, you know, it maybe went too far the other way. Although to your point, you know, Matt Chapman looked like he was fine for a while. And so have other guys at different times. Um, Mike, I don't know if you got a chance to read Shai Davidi's piece about the Rogers Center uh, at sportsnet.ca this week. D did you, before I finish this line of questioning? I skimmed it. I did not read okay. every word carefully, but okay. yeah, Shai's work is great. It's an interesting look back at conversations you and I had with Ben Ennis when I was on Fan Drive Time heading into this year about how that park might play. Um, obviously, Look, generally, we need, what, three years of park factors to, to get some stability in the numbers. And then with Rogers Center, you have to factor in that the roof's open sometimes, it's closed sometimes, the dimensions are changing slightly again next year. Um, but with the limited data that we have here, 77 games at Rogers Center, um, what do you make of it playing as as low offense as it had, but also maybe a, a plus to home runs, at least to left center, center, and right center? I'm glad you brought up the fact that it's going to change again this winter, <laughs> right? As it's not annoying enough to figure out what's going on. We're going to have to figure it out again with more foul or different foul territory next year. I, I think it's too soon to say for sure. 
I think so much of it when you're looking at, you know, a team's home road splits can kind of come down to, let's say, one superstar MVP caliber hitter being much better on the road. Right. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't want to put it all on Vlad. It's not all on Vlad for sure. But if he was hitting the same way he was on the road, I think the conversation is enormously different. You know, I looked this up uh, yesterday. Uh, so it doesn't include anything that happened last night. But you look at uh, home runs across Major League Baseball and you combine pitching and hitting. So like total team home runs, home runs hit and home runs allowed. Uh, entering yesterday, the Blue Jays had, let's say, participated in 34 more home runs on the road, hitting and pitching. And that was the fourth highest number in baseball. Right. So there's, there's something going on here. It seems to me that the uh, the aspect we don't talk about enough that I think Shai hit on a little bit was that. The ball's not flying there necessarily as well. And you can look at that with stack cast numbers, right? Mm -hmm. You look at, uh, you know, a certain kind of pulled batted ball, you know, uh, hard hit balls uh, and a certain launch angle. So you're just trying to get consistency, like you're not talking about ground balls. And uh, the ball's flying three and a half feet less than average this year. Last year, it was about average, right? I don't think that's nefarious. I don't think that's conspiracy theory. I think that kind of comes down to, yes, we haven't really had as many full seasons of uh, the humidor ballpark as everybody else has, because mm -hmm. obviously they didn't play there for a large part of a couple of seasons it could also just be changes in weather. It could be changes in the roof. I think it's fair to say that the ball is just not flying there quite as well, but you know, it's hard to pin everything on that because it's not like, it's not like everybody's hitting better on the road. You know, you've got guys that are hitting better there at home. My guess is that it's probably never going to be like the wildly hitter friendly park. It probably was in the past, but I'm also not ready to say based on what we've seen over five months, this is what it is now. It's going to take some time. So this is us doing this and we can kick it around and, and it's it's a fun exercise and I'm sure we'll dive a little deeper into some of the stack cast stuff that you're mentioning in the offseason. If you are the Toronto Blue Jays front office, you've known this was coming. You were trying to do your own modeling for it. They had told us they actually thought the changes would come out to about net neutral. Um, and, and look, some of this is, like you said, personnel related or and there's some noise here. But if you're the Blue Jays front office and it's been as we'll say difficult to figure out as, as it has and more changes are coming. How are you handling this as a front office? Because when we, when we, when I think about park changes or any park that has a uniqueness to it, like Coors field or, or Baltimore, part of why you do that is, yeah, it's cool. And it's a fun thing about baseball, but it should be a leg up for the front office where you can optimize for your own ballpark better than someone else can. Uh, what are you doing with this? If you're the Toronto blue Jays front office. I'm not sure I'm doing anything with it. I think it's changed the way that the ballpark has played based on previous comparisons. It, I don't look at it all of a sudden. It's now like City Field or, or Petco or some extreme pitcher's park, right? Like, I think it's not so extreme in any direction that you need to necessarily make specific roster choices because of the ballpark. You know, we all know they have some free agents leaving this year. We all know they have some holes to fill, right? Like, is Chapman going to be back? Maybe, maybe not. Belt, Kiermaier. I just think you go out and you make the best choices for the roster. I'm not. I'm not sure this is a situation where you have to worry about the ballpark that much. I think that's probably true for, I don't know, 25 teams <laughs> in baseball. I, I think we think about the park probably too much, except for the extreme situations like, you know, your cores or, or some other places like that. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure I'd worry about it. Go get the best players and either they'll perform or they won't. Yeah, I would, I, that's that's the easiest way to do it. And that's probably, you know, we, we talk about these things and maybe it's a tiebreaker or something like that. Um, but yeah, you're going to need really, really good players. That was the idea with, you know, Dalton Varsho was not that he was so well suited to Roger Center. It was that he's a really good player who should contribute everywhere. And his offensive season just just hasn't been that. Um, so those are the changes to Roger Center. Mike, there have also been some changes to Major League Baseball and your 
counterpart, Anthony Kastrovins, wrote a, a great piece the other day, kind of looking at some of the trends we can now put a bow on that we have a full season's worth of data. I know it's something you've been tracking a lot of too. And the thing that, you know, is most fun certainly is the, the large increase in stolen bases this year. Ronald Acuna goes 40-70. And yeah, there's the strikeout percentage, uh, the strikeout decline part of that as well that, that you and I talked about last time you came on. Um, I guess when we look at the stolen base numbers all around baseball, you, you tweeted it the other day, 25 teams have stolen more bases this year. There are more 10 plus stolen base guys than ever before. Um, how do you think that the environment is going to respond to this? Like, like, is there a shift in the off season in any sort of roster building priority? Um, what we emphasize with say catcher defense over the off season, things like that, because there will be, you know, this is fun and it's really cool. There will be some sort of response either to neutralize the stolen base numbers or take advantage of the new environment at the team level. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think there's probably two immediate answers to that. You know, and the, the first is that some of the teams that failed this year, I think the Yankees are a great example of this, you know, older, slower. I think they're going to look at teams like the Diamondbacks and like the Reds and say, well, you know, being youthful, being fast, that that is something that can benefit us here. Right. So I think you're going to see some teams maybe prioritize that kind of player, the younger, more athletic player, which is great because like those guys are more fun to watch. The other thing I think is you're going to see a change in strategy on the offensive side next year. And I think teams are probably going to be a little more aggressive because I think what's happening here, we have an all time high in stolen base success rate, which says to me, teams are leaving stolen bases on the table. You know, when I look at Acuna's 70, you know, like, why why does he get there and nobody else does? I mean, I know Asteri Ruiz is not far off. He is not the fastest base runner on the planet. Like, he's fast, obviously, but there are faster. You know, I don't think he's the best base dealer who ever lived. And he's not even, even really that valuable on the bases in terms of, you know, taking extra bases, right? What is it about him that gets into all these stolen bases? He's on first base a lot because he's mm -hmm. a great hitter. Certainly, that's part of it. But I think the number one thing that's gotten him here is just the willingness to be aggressive and not be scared and just do it, right? But there are so many guys like Trey Turner is a perfect, I don't know where he's at now, but it's like 30 for 30, 29, 29, yeah. somewhere thereabouts. And that says to me, you're not stealing enough, man. <laughs> like if you're perfect, if you're not getting thrown out even one time, you should be stealing a little bit more. And obviously some strategy comes into that. Like, should you really be stealing in front of Bryce Harper? You know, should Acuna even be stealing as often as he is? I think is maybe a question. But if across the league, it's this hard to get thrown out, I think you will see teams saying, well, okay, we're going to take more bases in the right situations. That's the number one change I think you'll see next year. That's a big one. And yeah, it's not just trade. I mean, Corbin Carroll's 51 for 56. CJ Abrams is 44 for 48. There are a lot of high volume guys uh, that could probably make a case to be even more aggressive within reason, uh, of course. Um, the other thing that could potentially happen, and this is more of a long-term thing, I don't think you can go out there this offseason and say, hey, we need catchers who control the run game more and turn guys into that. But I do wonder, Mike, if um, that is something that becomes... It, it kind of moves back toward the top of the the checklist when you're look when you're evaluating catcher. We have more data now on blocking and framing. Who knows if the challenge system is going to come and that maybe minimizes slightly the impact of good framing. Um, but do you see or is there even a path to teams putting a greater emphasis on catchers who can uh, help control the run, help their pitchers control the run game uh, a little better? Are those guys just not out there. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the path, if there is a path, it won't happen next year, right? Yeah. That would have to be something in terms of drafting and player development where you'd you know prioritize that more. I don't necessarily think that's going to be suddenly the number one team thing that teams look for. I think what will happen is if you look at the very bottom of the barrel, the guys who are absolutely awful at this. So, for example, uh, Yasmani Grandal, Kaber uh, Ruiz, guys who just get abused. Those guys, I think, will have a tougher time getting regular catching jobs next year. But there's not going to be any change as far as like the robot arms. Like framing will still be extremely valuable. It is still more valuable than preventing stolen bases, which I know is a tough thing for people to hear because you see a base being stolen. It's really hard to see a good frame. But since there's so many more frameable pitches, that value adds up over the years. So I don't know that you're going to see anything change like next year, aside from, like I said, some of the really poor guys maybe having less of a chance than they did before. Um, but, you know, it, it's been one year of this. So I think kind of going back to what I said about teams maybe being more aggressive next year, if that's true, then that changes what I just said. If it turns out that the stolen base attempt rate continues to rise, then maybe teams reevaluate this and say, well, actually, maybe this is more important than it used to be over the last couple of years. Yeah, maybe you go out and you try to trade for Gabriel Moreno and then get him back or something like that. Yeah, um, for, for, good. for context there, for what Mike's saying about how framing just has a bigger impact over the course of an entire game or an entire season, we can, we can evaluate kind of the number of runs estimated that a catcher saved in different ways. Gabriel Moreno leads the league with six catchers stealing runs um, on the blocking side. You know, it's Alejandro Kirk at the top with four. So the very high end of blockers, maybe not quite the same value as the very high end of um, base uh, of throwers, but still a, an impact there. But then you look on the framing side and Patrick Bailey's been worth like 16 runs or Austin Hedge has been worth 13. Uh, so there, there is more, um, you know, there's more you can do on the framing side. Uh, Mike, last one for you on the trickle down of stolen bases. So we've seen the volume go way up. Caught stealing are not significantly up. Pickoffs are actually up a tiny bit, even though um, pitchers can, can disengage less frequently, probably because hitters can take longer leads and they're being a bit more aggressive. Um, there are, we, we just worked through some of the longer term this offseason or, or even multi-season responses to that. What do you anticipate the response being in a playoff environment? Because I think we hear sometimes that, you know, the playoffs are a bit more about small ball. So maybe that means more stolen bases, but the playoffs are also a bit more conservative. So that means less playoffs rely more on home runs. So that, you know, means maybe you steal a little bit less, but also the offensive environment is, is less. So the value of a stolen base, the data goes in a couple different directions. The logic goes in a couple different directions. Do you anticipate stolen base rates being higher than we're used to seeing in the playoffs as well? I love this question because it's like the number one thing I'm most excited to see, right? If you think about the upcoming postseason, we haven't seen a postseason uh, under the pitch clock, which I'm super excited to see because that's been a massive success. And we haven't seen a postseason under these new rules. And I, I've been thinking about this a little bit because, you know, as I said, I, I believe stolen uh, base runners should be a little more aggressive in attempting stolen bases, but they're still human beings. And I, I think you're a hundred percent right that not scared. Isn't the right word, but like a little more conservative on a bigger stage about not getting thrown out is something I could pretty easily see. I mean, there probably be some combinations of pitcher and catcher where it's like the numbers that you have to go because they're so slow and they're not going to throw you out. But could I see, you know, you look at the teams that are going to be in the playoffs. Could I see Turner, uh, Acuna, some of these other guys saying, uh, we're not going to be as aggressive because we just don't want to risk the out. And if that's true, I think that'll be kind of a fun story to tell because the 
thing that people don't want to hear, especially when it comes to Acuna and the MVP race, is that stolen bases just aren't as valuable as people want them to be. If you get thrown out, it's something like three times more damaging than a successful steal is worth. And if they, in the postseason, decide it's not worth the risk, then what does that say about the meaning and value of stolen bases in the first place? I don't know that that's going to happen. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe these guys just go nuts. But uh, I, I think that's going to be a really interesting value proposition to see if things change when the games are even more meaningful. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating to uh, to take a look at and see how that plays out. And then, of course, you know, it varies a little bit team by team. Like, I don't think we're going to see the Texas Rangers run much at all if they're in there. The Toronto Blue Jays have been on the more conservative side, more stolen bases than last year, but on the lower end in terms of uh, not only aggressiveness, but also success uh, in that regard. So I don't know. We'll see them uh, run a ton unless we get a, a Cam Eden cameo or something like that. Um, Mike, the Jays still have to clinch a playoff spot here, but if they do make it one of their potential opponents, is the Minnesota Twins. That's a Twins team that um, you've had a couple things about recently. The three rookies with a, an OPS plus of 120 or higher, but I also know that they're a team that while the bullpen hasn't looked amazing at all times this year, you think there are a couple guys that are maybe peaking at the right time. Uh, they just got... Who did they just get back the other day? Um, Chris Paddock is back now. Um, Louis Varlin's been been a little better of late. How dangerous do you think this Twins team can be in the playoffs as you know a, a home run team, but also a team that can turn to uh, a couple of really good relievers now behind Lopez and Gray? I don't know, Blake, if uh, the the reach of your uh, your radio signal here goes into Minnesota or not, because I hate to praise a team that has not won a playoff game since like 1842, <laughs> but. I think this is a really good like object lesson here in that when you go to the postseason, especially when you're talking about best of threes to start with, you can't necessarily just look at a team's season long stats because the team has changed a lot, right? You go back to the twins opening day bullpen and like, you know, Cole Sands and Jorge Lopez are in it. Those guys are not really going to be part of the picture. Now you've got, you know, Chris Paddock, like you said, who's back from injury throwing 99 uh louis varland is a great example every year it seems like there is a pop-up reliever or three who nobody outside of that team's fan base has really heard of and then he absolutely shoves and you're like who's this guy you know for me last year it was brian abreu uh with the astros who was awesome you know tyler matzik was this guy a couple years ago for the braves and louis varland was uh, he's actually a local boy he's from minnesota and you know he's a, a decent starting pitching prospect. Uh, went down and now he's pitching out of the bullpen. And all of a sudden he's throwing a hundred with a nasty cutter. And you know he's got like five straight scoreless innings with a whole bunch of strikeouts. That's the kind of guy, guy like that. Abner Uribe with Milwaukee. Uh, Ryan Kirkering with Philadelphia, who just came up the other day. There's gonna be some guy on a national stage who shoves, and everybody's gonna be like, I have no idea who this person is. Where did they find this guy? So when you go to the Twins, you think of Paddock. And you think of uh, Varland and you think Brock Stewart's probably going to be back and he pitched really well. And oh, yeah, they have Jawan Duran as their uh, closer and the starting rotation. I believe the Twins had the most pitching strikeouts in baseball, right? Because they have Gray, Lopez and Joe Ryan. And I take that. And then I look at the lineup with these rookies, Matt Walner and Lewis, if he's healthy and, and uh, Edward Julian. And it's funny, I'm not talking about Carlos Correa at all because he, <laughs> he hasn't been very good. Byron Buxton probably isn't going to play. That's the old twins kind of in on the new twins, which I know is going to end in disaster because they never win postseason games. Yeah, it's uh, that that's the tough part. But there is, uh, you know, an immovable object versus the irresistible force or, or whatever there with, uh, you know, some of the other teams <laughs> that have uh, not a great postseason history or, or just aren't playing good baseball right now. You mentioned those those pitchers that kind of come out of nowhere. I don't think this is anything, but 
John Schneider kind of like tripped up talking about Ricky Tiedemann the other day. He's supposed to be Arizona Fall League bound, but apparently he's still working out with the other taxi squad guys in Buffalo. And it just like I raised an eyebrow like a quarter of a millimeter there at something like that, Mike. Yeah, I actually hope that happens. If only, um, I mean, it'd be fun to watch, right? There's a myth that never seems to go away where people absolutely insist that if you're not in the big leagues by August 31, you're not eligible to be on the postseason roster. Wrong. Just not true. It's, I don't think it's ever been true. You just have to be in the organization, right? So, for example, the Rangers, you know, calling up Evan Carter after September 1st, the Phillies calling up Kirkering after September 1st. It's not like these teams are stupid and like, oh, I didn't call them up sooner. They can't be in the postseason. Yes, they can. Ricky Tiedemann can be, too. You could find, I don't know, the third string catcher in the Florida State League team and call him up if you want to, as long as he was there by the end of August in the organization. So I think step one is make the playoffs. Yeah. That would be a good start. But I, I hope they put Ricky. I think that would be super fun. I want to see that. Yeah. And and the reason I think people get confused is, like, first of all, you have to, if someone is outside the organization, they have to be inside the organization. And then technically the way the rules are written is, yeah, you have to be on the 40 man or the 60 day IL. There's just like a litany of loopholes around that for a playoff roster. So uh, we have to do, you know, the creative roster uh, accounting. Mike Petriello, uh, thanks for taking the time. Are you on Blue Jay Central tonight? Uh, I am a Blue Jay Central tonight. My last one of the regular season. I'm looking forward to it. I have my last one of the regular season on Tuesday uh, about Michael King. So I hope yours turns out a little better for the Toronto Blue Jays, Mike. <laughs> I hope so, too. Trust me. When I tweeted, oh, maybe the uh, Blue Jays will hit Cole and give Gosman a shot in the AL Cy Young. That didn't happen. Every Yankee fan still on Twitter is letting me know about that this morning. So thank you. Thank you, everybody, for that. Yeah, yeah. The Yankees fans who are, you know, doing the champagne bottle because they're finishing above 500 for the, like, 117th year in a row. Um, Mike Petriello, MLB.com. Thanks, buddy. Thanks a lot, Blake. Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Make sure you're checking out all his great work uh, over at MLB.com. Anthony Castrovince's piece as well on uh, how the rule changes have had an impact now that we have basically a season worth of data. I'm so fascinated to see how the stolen base stuff plays out in the playoffs. And I don't know that it'll end up mattering a ton for the Toronto Blue Jays offensively because they just don't steal a, a ton of bases. Again, they are they have stolen more bases than last year, but they're 22nd in baseball. They haven't been particularly uh, effective. They have one of the lowest stolen base success rates in all of baseball. If you're looking at potential opponents, though, Tampa Bay is fourth, but one stolen base out of second. So effectively, they're they're second in the league uh, in base stealing along with Arizona and just a little behind Cincinnati. So if you draw Tampa Bay in a playoff series, they run a bunch. They've been pretty effective. You know, there are some personnel wrinkles there with, with who they have on the IL or who they have, you know, kind of day to day right now. But Yandy Diaz isn't the guy stealing a bunch of bases anyway. Uh, they're a fast team. They're aggressive. They look for every edge. And Alejandro Kirk, who has been a, I, I mentioned it earlier, top of the league in terms of run value provided by blocking behind the plate up there near the top of the league in framing. Not a, a big impact on the running game as you you probably could surmise. Now, you steal on the pitcher. That's the old Ricky Henderson. Uh, but you get thrown out by the catcher, and the Jays haven't shown a great ability to do that. So if you're looking at the Tampa Bay Rays as an opponent, it's probably something high on your uh, your concern list for a series like that. The Minnesota Twins less so. They actually steal less than the Blue Jays. Um, they've been very effective stealing bases. They just don't do it very much. And I think part of why that is the case is they're also second in the American league in home runs. And if you're a team that's built to hit the ball in the air and win via the home run, this extra 90 feet from first to second, isn't all that valuable. If your primary means of scoring runs 
is the long ball. That's also why Texas doesn't run a lot, part of its personnel, but part of it is they hit a lot of home runs and you don't want to take a guy off the bases if it's a home run coming, not a single. Uh, the Jays kind of fall somewhere in between there as a team that doesn't do either of them uh, super well. So again, if it's Tampa, you're probably looking at this as a huge concern. If you're if it's Minnesota, you're probably really focused in on Willie Castro or Michael Taylor, but that's that's probably about it. Be fascinating to see how that plays out for the Jays and around baseball. Jays got to make it first. Uh, if they do make it, it's either going to be because Kevin Gosman shoves in game 162 on Sunday, or they've done the work before then. And then Kevin Gosman is going to start game one of the wildcard series. Either way, Kevin Gosman going to be on the mound in what'll be the biggest game of the blue Jays season. Uh, however, that shakes out. Alex Iser to fan graphs uh, wrote about Kevin Gosman's season the other day. We're going to take a break. We'll talk to Alex about Kevin Gosman's splitter taking a small step back this year, but the fastball taking a big step forward. Alex Iser next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Chris Bassett will try to get it done down at Rogers Center tonight opposite Luke Weaver. But we're going to look back to a couple starts ago. We're going to look ahead to either game 162, if things have not gone well the last couple days, or game one of the wild card, if things go well the next couple days. Kevin Gosman has had another very, very good season. He'll be on some Cy Young ballots. Not going to win. Garrett Cole kind of put his foot down about that yesterday if there was any conversation still but Kevin Gosman's had a really good season Alex Izard of fan graphs of pinstripe alley of baseball prospectus wrote about it recently he joins us now Alex good morning how are you great thank you for having me no problem uh, so you wrote this Kevin Gosman piece about his splitter quiet brilliance loud contact and the takeaway here was not that Kevin Gosman is in any way bad obviously this is yet another really good Kevin Gosman season but whether it's, you know, hey, the batting average on balls in play last year that when we dug in on a little bit wasn't entirely defense related or when we look at some of the, you know, exit velocity, hard hit rate, things like that this year, he's a, a kind of a unique case in just how good he is, just how dominant he is, but working around pretty loud contact. How is Gosman able to do both of those things be really, really good, be dominant a lot of the time and work around that kind of high contact, uh, hard contact profile. Yeah. I mean, it's by no means like a bad contact profile either. It's just not what you would expect given the really good strikeout rates, the really good walk rates. Um, and that's also how he's been able to work around that profile. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to see, you know, obviously home runs, walks, strikeouts. That will, that's what we put into fielding independent pitching. So if you're sorting by fan graphs war, there is a, you know, good, good. Uh, it's very positive about Kevin Gosman, about his Cy Young candidacy, et cetera. Um, you know, anytime though you see, or you hear about loud contact, that can be a, a little bit of a, a concern when you dive in further, Alex, um, what is happening with his, splitter this year because some of those results are coming on what was and still is a very very good pitch but what last year was one of the very best pitches in baseball yeah yeah I mean so Gosman has kind of made this leap the last couple of years by upping his splitter usage and he's essentially become a two-pitch pitcher um, four-seamer and splitter 
Um, but this year, the four-seamer is really what's carrying him. The splitter has been worse. And if you dig into the numbers a bit, you can see that he has a career-low vertical release point on the pitch, which means so t- typically the splitter will have, a, will have backspin the same as a four-seamer. But the lower your release goes, the more sideways the ball is at release, the more that backspin will turn into sidespin. Um, and backspin is what typically leads to that riding effect that you see on four seamers, mitigating the effects of gravity. But with a splitter, you want to have a really low spin rate in order to kill that ride and let gravity do its things. Uh, so it will drop. Um, but when you have a side spinning splitter, killing the sp- spin is less important. And Gosman does have um, a career high spin rate on the splitter this year. So he's getting a lot of run horizontal movement. Um, but there's still some backspin, and the high spin rate is leading to a lot less drop than we've seen uh, typically. Um, and he's also throwing it harder than ever, so it's, it has simply less time to drop. Um, and so some of these things are good, right? Uh, it's, it's good that he's throwing it harder in some ways, and it's good that it's getting more ride, but the decrease in vertical movement is kind of outweighing these other uh, changes uh, according to stuff plus. Um, but he's still been con- uh, succeeding because he has this good carry on the four seamer. Um, and the four seamer movement profile hasn't really changed despite the uh, change in release point, which is interesting. Maybe he's doing something to compensate for that, like a grip change or something. Um, but he's also spotting it really well this year at the bottom of the zone. Um, and when you have a four seamer with good carry, you usually think of spotting at the top of the zone. So hitters will swing underneath it. Um, but if you spot at the bottom of the zone, hitters are just waiting for it to drop out of the zone. It never does. Um, the issue though, is that, um, basically the splitter, um, also ends up at the bottom of the zone. Um, so there's less pitch separation. Right. So if you're, you know, we've talked about this in the past when Gosman, you know, when teams have jumped on certain things, it's like, well, fastball high splitter low is maybe a little too predictable. So he's gone toward, well, I'm going to throw my fastball low too. It's going to be a little harder to pick those up, but the splitter hasn't dropped quite as much. So you'd want both of those kind of coming to the same area and then one diving away. If you are, when you look at that, if you are an opposing team who can, you know, let's say it's wild card game one, you're the twins or you're the rays. You're looking at the season that Kevin Gosman has had. It is obviously way easier said than done to, Hey, swing at the fastball and lay off the splitter or something like that. That's an oversimplification. Um, but given the way Gosman's season has gone, uh, the fact that when he's used the slider, it hasn't been particularly uh, super effective anyway. What do you think a good game plan is or, or a good, you know, mental plan of attack is coming in against Gosman? It, it, you know, again, benefit of if you're the twins of the Rays, you're sitting at home here with a couple days to get ready for this. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, probably for now, just go back to that north south approach, uh, go back to throwing the four seamer at the top of the zone, even if the splitter's not diving as much as it has before, it still plays best at the bottom of the zone. Um, and I think in the long term, um, if you want to try and get some of that drop back, um, you might try to have Gosman change his release a little bit um, to more over the top again. Um, if you um, if you want to try and keep that release point, you might try and improve the sweeper that he's experimented with this year. Um, since he's been able to spin the ball a little bit more from this new release, that could 
lead to a better sweeper. So one of the things that's helped Kevin Gosman this year helped the Toronto Blue Jays pitchers in general. They're, they're a fraction of an ERA point behind Milwaukee right now for the best ERA in baseball. And yeah, that's a pitcher stat, but that's also a team defense that um, Kevin Gosman and all of the Blue Jays pitchers have benefited from improved outfield defense behind them. And I know this is something you've wrote about uh, before, Alex. In fact, you were nominated for a Sabre Award for your work on uh, outfield alignment last year. When you look at the, what the Blue Jays have been able to do defensively as an outfield this year, um, if we look at outs above average on StatCast, it's them in Milwaukee and then a big gap before everyone else. If we use defensive run saved, it's Toronto by a mile in terms of best defensive outfields. Uh, the additions of Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermeyer, as well as the bump for, for George Springer from center to right field. Um, just how good is this Blue Jays defense? What do you like about how they've done they how they've done this with kind of, you know, we're exaggerating here, but three center fielders in the outfield at a given time? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration. This is a really great defensive outfield, and it's been a lot of fun watching it this year. Um, I think Kiermeyer is one of the best outfielders of this generation. Um, and so, look, last year, Gosman was batted to death, basically. He allowed a 363 batting average on balls in play. Um, and his hard hit rate and barrel rate, they never belied that. Um, uh, so this year he's at a more reasonable 321, and I think a lot of that is due to the additions of Varsho and Kiermaier. Um, and what I like about the way that the Jays are deploying them is uh, something that I found in my um, outfield alignment piece is that basically uh, you want to have your best uh, you know outfielder in center field uh, no matter what. Uh, they're, the put-out opportunities there just far outnumber the opportunities in the corners. Um, and even if you have, if your best arm is also in center, um, you still, you still want to put them there. Yeah. If their best glove is, um, sorry, excuse me. Um, if you have your best glove and your best arm in the same outfielder, which the blue, the blue Jays do in the case of Kevin Kiermaier, um, you still want to put them in center field rather than right, because putouts are just a lot more frequent, uh, than assist opportunities. Um, but the Jays are doing the right thing, which is their best of the rest arm, which is Springer, they're putting him in right field. Um, and his uh, his arm strength is really, it's close to Kiermaier's. It's not quite there, but it's a lot better than Varsho's. And then Varsho, meanwhile, is just amazing with the glove. Um, the other thing that I looked at a lot was um, directional fielding. So which fielders tend to do better moving to their right versus their left. Um, and I found that Generally, you would want to have a, a lefty fielder, so someone who throws with their left hand, um, playing left field because then um, their glove side plays, uh, they would have full range over those uh, plays, whereas the center fielder couldn't cut them off. Um, but, you know, the Blue Jays have all, all uh, right-handed outfielders, uh, so that's not as much of a consideration. <laughs> So when you look at this data, you, you mentioned the directional data. All three of these Blue Jays outfielders have really strong numbers going backward. Um, so, you know, turning around and covering the ground behind you. Uh, Varsho in particular is kind of the the league's best at, at going, if he's in left field, going back and toward center, uh, or if he's at center, going back and toward the right field side. When you look at that, um, I mean, I guess you could just play your outfield, you play your outfield shallow and make sure singles don't become doubles and things like that. Um, what, what do you, what do you do with that alignment wise when you have three guys who all cover ground behind them really well? 
Yeah, I um, yeah, I found that that's something teams are actually doing in that piece is they are playing guys shallower if they can if they're better at moving backwards. Um, and yeah, I think I mean you know obviously you wouldn't want to play them like just behind the infield. So there's a point uh, at which you know you don't move them in any further, and it it differs by hitter, you know, depending on the power of the hitter. Um, so. Um, but yeah, I think totally like the Blue Jays can play their outfield in more than other teams might. Okay. So on the, on the hitting side, something we've talked about a, a little bit lately here in Toronto, and I'm not going to ask you these questions about the Jays specific hitters, but more generally, um, you had a piece the other day at Fangraphs as well. Does swinging less mean swinging at better pitches? So sometimes, you know, we can, we can exaggerate or, or get carried away a little bit about, Hey, swinging less means better discipline means better results. And that's not a one to one to one thing. We've seen a handful of blue Jays improve their approach over the last little bit of the season here, at least as far as swinging at stuff outside of the zone, less limiting that chase rate before you get to two strikes. Um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s done it. Kevin Biggio, Alejandro Kirk. Generally though, in the research that you've done, what do you find in, in terms of, I mean, to the to the point of the headline, does swinging less actually mean guys swing at better pitches? Um, is there a real value there to uh, keeping the bat on your shoulders a little bit longer? I think yes. Uh, definitely there is. Um, I think that, you know, if, if everyone were to swing less, um, then the value might change. Uh, pitchers might start pounding the zone. Uh, that's something I've, one of my favorite hitters is, uh, Brendan Donovan, uh, of the Cardinals. Um, and he's a guy who last year when he came up, um, he just didn't swing at anything pretty much. <laughs> um, and it was a good strategy for him because, um, even though he makes good contact, it's not powerful. Um, and so pitchers caught on though eventually. And so they started pounding the zone against him. And so he got a new bat and he was swinging for the fences more this year. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's a game of adjustments. Um, but I would say by and large, yeah, hitters could benefit from swinging less often. Um, I mean, Bo Bichette's, you know, uh, always been an interesting case. Um, very aggressive hitter. Um, but he's making more contact than ever this year. Um, so it's, you know, it varies case by case as well. Uh, so Alex, when it comes to these swing decisions at the plate, and I know your background is in psych and in cognitive science, um, this is to me where maybe, I, and apologies for, for, for speaking for you, but these kind of swing decisions and how you approach the, the game theory of the plate, how you're reacting to information that either the pitcher is giving you or you're seeing from, you know, you're in the on-deck circle and you see what the guy ahead of you uh, is doing. I know you've written about swing mirroring before. How much do you find your background in psych and cognitive science plays a role when you're trying to evaluate, you know, a hitter's thinking and approach at the plate? Oh, it's it's immensely useful. I think um, psychology is really underutilized in baseball right now. Um, and um, especially cognitive psychology, just thinking about, uh, you know, a priming effects and, cognitive heuristics and short mental shortcuts that a lot of hitters and pitchers are using to decide what to do next. Um, and that's where things like the swing mirroring, uh, come in where the, the game theory comes in. And I've done a lot of work also, um, in college, I did a lot of work on the, the distinction between guesser hitters, you know, who guess which pitch type is coming before the pitcher even goes into their motion based on, what was, what was the last pitch and uh, what's the game situation? 
um, versus read and react hitters who really take the early trajectory information into account. Um, and, you know, that can also, for a pitcher, that can be really important to consider, um, you know, whether you, you want to use a pitch that has more late break um, against a guy who's more of a read and react, or you just want to really randomize your pitch selection for someone who's more of a guesser. So I'm sending my pitchers to uh, get a cognitive science degree over the course of their minor league careers. That's that's the takeaway here, right, yeah. Alex? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Quickly, before I let you go here, because we're, we're almost out of time, I had intended to do a little bit more on you with the Rockies because I know you're working on the Rockies player capsules for uh, for baseball prospectus for next year's annual. And I talked to a couple of Jays pitchers after that course Field Series, well, a couple weeks removed from the course Field Series, about how their pitches did or didn't move there. Um, as you're diving in on these guys, I guess because we're short on time i guess my main question is do the rockies do enough of a job when it comes to player identification and player development taking advantage of the unique nature of course field um i think the short answer is no um but one thing that they are kind of doing is they're saying look if you don't completely fall apart here we're going to sign you to a long-term deal and that's guys like herman marquez senzatella um and sometimes just by virtue of doing that, they hit on some guys like Senzatella actually has this pretty unique fastball um, that has a low active spin percentage, which basically means that it's uh, relying on gravity a lot for its movement. And gravity is, you know, relying on gravity is just as effective at elevation as it is anywhere else. So just by virtue of doing that, they're relying on, uh, they're hitting on some guys. Um, And you had mentioned to me that you talked to Trevor Richards about his changeup in Colorado. Um, and I'm surprised actually that Richards, uh, noticed a change in movement on his, uh, change up because it's also a pitch that relies a lot on gravity. Um, but it just goes to show, you know, no pitch, uh, solely relies on gravity. Um, and it's just, it's still, a. uh, a problem we haven't completely <laughs> solved. <laughs> well, the uh, the Rockies don't have an analytics department to solve it, so hopefully you can, Alex. Uh, <laughs> Alex Eiser, keep up the great work at Fangraphs, uh, Pinstripe Alley, Baseball Prospectus. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time this morning, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Alex Eiser, uh, check out his work at Fangraphs as well as those other places uh, and on Twitter at Mind Over Batter, which is a clever Twitter handle uh, as well. Um, and the Trevor Richards change-up note, I should note, is... Thanks to our pal, Chris Black at down to black, who also sent me a note regarding home road splits, by the way, um, because of the new schedule dynamic, there is also a potential. I, I don't think this would explain all of it, but it would explain part of it um, because of now everyone plays everyone and you're going to see some teams at home, but not on the road. It's less um, it's more balanced overall around the league, but it is less balanced home road than last than in years prior. Um, and what Chris sent us quickly is that actually the Jays quality of competition at home has been higher than it has been on the road just because of the way those things, you know, that'll be a cyclical thing. Um, it'll, it'll kind of change year by year, but another possible partial explanation there that uh, yeah, the Jays have just faced tougher teams at home than they have on the road. And that's borne out in uh, the, the strength of schedule. If we, if we break down the schedule, so that'll be something to keep an eye on uh, when we see or I think we already have next year's schedule, but when we uh, when we dive in uh, a little further on that, let's dive in very, very quickly on Luke Weaver, who the Blue Jays will see tonight. Now, big monster ERA is well over six. He's on his fifth team of the last two seasons, uh, kind of a career journeyman type. He does throw 94. It's a fastball that he will try to locate 
up in the zone. So, you know, you, you've the Jays have seen a lot of that type of guy to mixed results. He'll also mix in uh, a changeup, feature it heavily against lefties, but he'll throw it to righties a, a significant amount as well. Uh, a slider that he primarily throws to righties, and he'll mix in a curveball, a cutter. There's a sweeper in there sometimes. Uh, yeah, you know the type. Uh, guy who throws 94 up in the zone and throws four or five secondary pitches. Now, the results have not been very good by most metrics. He's been one of the worst starters in baseball this year. Um, the only thing he really does at an above average level is limit walks. So if you're the blue Jays, no, you can't take this guy lightly by any means. Your offense just hasn't been good enough to allow you to do that. But you are looking at this as a game. You really got to have, you don't want to head into this series with Tampa this weekend, needing two of three or even three of three, depending on what happens with Seattle and Texas. Uh, this is probably the, spot left on the schedule where you could most anticipate getting to a pitcher and, and putting a number up. So uh, got to happen here. Brendan Belt, by the way, five of nine, five, four, nine against Weaver in his career with uh, three doubles. So good opportunity there. Uh, Chris Bassett against this Yankees lineup. Uh, I would expect he continues to look pretty good. He's got an outside chance at reaching that 200 innings marker uh, that I think he wants uh, pretty well there as well. I think he'd have to go seven and two thirds. Uh, Blair and Barker will continue to tee this one up for you five to seven. They'll also have Jay's talk for you after the game. I'd imagine Jesse Rubinoff and Sho Ali coming up here after me. will give you a lot of Jay's talk as well. Thanks to Alex, Mike, and Dan Schulman for coming on. Talk to you tomorrow.